we are wrapping up what is known as Jesus's high priestly prayer. It's found in uh, John chapter 17, and as Jeff and I have both pointed out, <clears throat> this is, is really the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the prayer that is generally known as the Lord's Prayer is the one that he gave to his disciples to pray, but this one is his prayer to God, and this is, uh, you know, Scripture talks about how Jesus would pray often. But this one is the longest recorded prayer, so we actually see the content of this prayer. And interestingly, this prayer mimics the prayer of the high priest uh, on the Day of Atonement, as Jesus uh, kind of uh, prays similarly to, to how he would pray. Jesus uh, prays kind of in concentric circles, beginning, first of all, with a prayer for himself. Uh, this is John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And then, as Jesus was praying this prayer, he, he had with him and surrounding him uh, 11 apostles. Judas had already left. No doubt he was already on his way with the mob to arrest our Lord. But uh, in that second section there, John 17, verses 16 to 19, Jesus prays for those closest to him. He prays for his apostles who were there with him standing there that night. And then we looked at last Sunday, the last section, John 17, verses 20 through 26, where in that section, Jesus expands his prayer uh, to not only include himself and his current apostles who were alive, but then expand to include all believers through all ages who would ever come to faith in him. Now, last Sunday, we already looked at it at, in quite some depth, but as I was preparing last week's sermon, I realized that uh, there was kind of a, a section that I wanted to deal with that is uh, kind of an implication from this text that, uh, that we didn't really get a chance to cover, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning. But we're going to look again at uh, John 17, verses 20 to 26, uh, just so, again, we can be reminded of what we looked at last week. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I'd encourage you to open them to that section of Scripture. And if you don't have a Bible with you, if you didn't bring one but would like to use one, you should find one in the seats in front of you uh, underneath. And if you're using that Bible, you'll find the passage on page 903. Jesus prays this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me, 
I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So as we looked at last week, uh, I talked about how Jesus' prayer here in verses 20 to 26 really focuses a lot on the unity, the unity that uh, the church, the future church uh, that he will build through his spirit would have with one another. And I focused, and I think rightly so, because I think this is really where Jesus focuses, uh, on the unity that God creates in his church. That the unity that we have is a unity that God supernaturally builds. And as I pointed out, uh, verse 20 looks at the unity that is formed by God through a common faith. Then what we see there is Jesus is sending out his apostles. He's going to send them out first to proclaim, and then later he will, through the power of the Spirit, carry some of them along to pen, to write down the Word of God. That, that what we really have in the apostles' preaching and in the teaching and in in what we have in the Bible are lots of different writers, but one divine author, that, that uh, God is writing his truth. He is speaking his truth in a variety of ways and through a variety of personalities and abilities. There is, Ephesians 4 says, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. And so the church is built, God's church, Christ's church, is built on that common unifying message, that, that uh, faith as Jude puts it, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The Christian faith has a specific content concerning a specific Lord, and when we deviate from that content, what you find is that you've stepped outside of Christianity. And, and those who deviate from that common faith are not part of Christ's church. However, we also find in verses 21 through 23 that the church's unity isn't simply formed by a common faith, but by a common spirit. As I mentioned last week, the, the church's, as I put it, horizontal unity, the unity that we have with one another, is rooted in our vertical unity. Uh, as each one of us is united to God the Father and to God the Son via God the Spirit, as we're all supernaturally united to the triune Godhead, we, by definition, become united to one another. The church is not some club that we build in our own strength. We don't decide simply to, to get together with, with some kind of common uh, uh, likes and dislikes and, and just join together in our own strength. The church is formed supernaturally, and we are united to one another by the Spirit. Verses 21 to th 23, you see there, you kind of see that uh, I and them and, and you and me, that harkens back to chapter 14 where Jesus was teaching them uh, in that upper room all about the Holy Spirit and how when the Spirit comes, he will unite 
his people to God the Father and God the Son. Jesus says that unless you're born of the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. If, if all we had were these words, if all we had was the content of the faith, but we had no Holy Spirit, none of us would come to faith. Those words would fall on deaf ears. Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. And so the church's unity is formed by God supernaturally through a common faith that he writes down and through a common spirit that he sends into each one of our hearts. But lastly, what we see in verse 24 is that the church's unity is formed by God through a common future. We see that there where Jesus says, I desire that all those whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That was the glory that he shared with God the Father before the world began. The glory that all believers one day, when we are glorified and in glory, will equally share. And that's what Jesus is praying here. So as I mentioned last week, in, in one sense, all Christians have a unique testimony. We all come from different backgrounds. We, we all had different lives. We all were non-Christians for a different length of time. Uh, some of us were born in Christian homes, some in non-Christian homes. Uh, we all have different backgrounds. We all have different struggles and experiences before coming to faith. And God uses all of those things in our lives to bring us to faith. And so in that sense, it's nice to hear different Christians' testimonies. We love, Michelle and I have luncheons at our house. We love to hear everyone share how they came to faith because every story is, in that sense, unique. And yet, at the same time, and in a very important way, every one of us has the exact same testimony because no matter how we came to faith, we were all equally dead in our sins. We were all equally spiritually, completely bent to this world and its way of doing things. And we all had to have the same spirit turn our hearts toward God. We had to have the faith that scripture says is a gift, itself a gift. We didn't conjure it up, God gave it to us. And so all Christians, no matter how different their walk, have the same entrance into the kingdom and we have the same future. In the kingdom. We all have the same ending, the same beginning and the same ending. No matter what our lives are like as Christians, no matter what we struggle with on this earth as Christians, I mean, as I preach this this morning, there are Christians, as Jeff prayed, uh, all over the world who are either fearing for their lives or some of them imprisoned for their faith right now. And Scripture tells us that we ought to remember those Christians who are in chains as though we are ourselves in chains. And so we all experience the Christian walk differently. But one day, when Christ returns, every Christian will be with him in glory, equally sharing and there in the presence of the glory of Christ as he prays. So what we find here and what we really looked at last week is that all of these things, this unity, is something, again, because God has done it, 
It is something that has already taken place in the church. We can speak of these things as being true now of the church, of everyone who is in the church. God has given the church a common faith, a common spirit, and a common future. And in that sense, we already have been united to each other spiritually. So, to put it one way, there is in the church an already side of our unity. We are already united. Just as if you read especially Paul's letters to churches, as Paul's describing the Christian faith, what we find in Paul's letters is that there is an already side to a Christian's uh, belief, to a Christian's salvation. There is an already side to the Christian faith. Paul will say things in his letters like this, don't you see Christians, you have already put off the old. You have already put on the new. Paul will say things in, in his letters like, Christians, you, you have put on Christ. Don't you realize that you, you have put on Christ? Don't you realize, Christians, that, that you are already seated in heaven with Christ? There's a sense in which all of these things are already true. And similarly, as I quoted last week, and I'll quote today, Paul says the same thing of churches. When he's writing to not an individual Christian, or when, or when he's not speaking to Christians as individuals, but when he's writing to a whole congregation, what does he say? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, I quoted this last week, Paul shares with them there's an already to their unity. Therefore, remember, he's saying to them, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. You were derided. Remember that you were, at that time, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And he says this, but now in, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Christ himself is our peace. He has made us both one. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. Paul says this, for, for through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. He closes it out by saying, you are joined together and you grow into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there you see all of that language of all of these things having been accomplished. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, again I quoted this last week, Paul says to that church, you see here in the church there is not Jew and Greek. There's not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all, and he's in all. So that part of it is incredibly important. But if you read further in Paul's letters, when he's speaking of the Christian, the individual Christian, and the Christian's walk, and, and the Christian's experience of salvation, he also expresses it 
in a not yet way. So if you've been here long enough, you've heard us mention probably quite a few times the already and not yet, already slash not yet of the Christian life. So if you read in Paul's letters, you'll, you'll find him say, saying things like, you have put off the old, you have put on the new. And then in the same letter, perhaps, he says, so put off the old and put on the new. Uh, he'll say things like, you have put on Christ. So then he'll say, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you're seated in heaven with Christ already. And he'll say, Christian, one day you will be raised and with Christ in heaven. Basically, what Paul is saying, if you sum it all up into one sentence, he is urging the Christian to become in Christ what you already are in Christ. Become in Christ what you already are. Uh, it's very important when you read Paul's letters that you place the indicatives, what is true, a statement of fact, in the proper place with the imperatives, the commands. And what you find in every instance in Paul's letters is that the imperatives, the things that he commands Christians and commands the church to do, rest upon the foundation of the indicative, what is already true. There's no sense in which Paul ever says, you must do these things and then you will be this in Christ. It's always you are this in Christ, therefore do these things. And if it's true in our individual Christian lives, then it's also true in a sense with regard to the unity of the church. Because just as there is a not yet in our Christian lives, there's also a not yet with regard to unity in the church. And I think anyone who's been a Christian and part of any local church for any length of time knows this to be true. It's not that hard to see that the local church, any local church, is not yet heaven, is not yet a place of perfect unity and perfect love. When we see this right away, interestingly, I mean, when you read through the book of Acts, you have these great instances of, of Christ working in people and the Spirit bringing people to faith and 3,000 being added to the church in one day. You, you have all of these examples of, of God creating unity in Christ. And then at the same time, you have right at the beginning, uh, you have disunity. You have problems. Acts chapter 6, right away, right at the start of the church, there's a conflict that, that arises between Greek-speaking Jews, those who were in the diaspora who had come back to Jerusalem and and become part of this church, and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And, uh, and there was a, a problem with the distribution uh, to the widows. And so what happened was, and in the midst of this problem and this, and this disunity, uh, there, there had to be the formation of the office of deacon, which you find in Acts chapter 6, and which we still have today in the church. In Acts chapter 15, you see that there's a conflict that arises over the nature of salvation itself. Some people saying that, that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And, and Scripture tells us there in Acts chapter 15 that conflict led to, quote, no small dissension and debate. 
And it, and it led eventually to the Jerusalem Council, where all of this had to be hashed out. In Acts chapter 15, you see, Scripture says, a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Yeah, these two giants of the faith. Uh, and there is a sharp disagreement between the two over a man named John Mark and, 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 and what they think of him. And, and that leads to Paul and Barnabas act, actually separating, going their separate ways. Paul joining up with Silas and, and Barnabas going with Mark. What's fascinating are Paul's letters. Paul is writing these letters to these new churches. And if you read, for instance, the letter to the Ephesians, again, you don't have to get very far. Chapter 1, where Paul is talking about how we're all, every believer has been elect in Christ before the foundation of the world, has been predestined to be with Christ and to be united to Christ, to be with him in glory. In chapter 2, again, as I quoted, Paul speaks of this already of church unity, that, that we've been made one, that there's this, this uh, supernatural unity that's been created, and then you don't have to go very far. This was the same letter. You know, think about this. These letters were sent to churches and, and read in one sitting. Now, we take our time and, and preach through them each week, but imagine if you were just hearing this letter read to you. By the time you finished chapter 2, you'd probably think, man, I don't know if Paul's speaking about us, because as I'm sitting here, we have a lot of issues going on here, and, and Paul seems to be saying that everything's fine and dandy. That's not my experience. You know, you might be thinking that. But you only get to chapter 4 a little bit later in, in the same letter. And Paul says, look, look, I, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I urge you to walk with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another in love. I, I urge you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he even expresses this already and not yet in that same sentence, basically, because he says, look, after saying that, I urge you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He says, there is one body and one Spirit. So it's almost like he's saying, there's one body and one Spirit, so please be one. <laughs> almost saying that in the same sentence. He, he calls the church in Ephesus to be eager to maintain the unity that they already have. Later in that same chapter, he, he talks about how God gave the church gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? So that the church would be built up until we all attain to the unity of faith. And then you don't have to go much further. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 521, a huge section of the letter, you find loads of commands Again, built upon the earlier chapters of what they've already been given in Christ. Loads of commands about all kinds of things pertaining to their life together as a church. He says things like this, don't walk as the Gentiles do any longer, Christians. Christian, don't lie to each other anymore. Christians, be angry, but, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Christians, look, don't steal from one another but labor for an honest day's pay. Christians, don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but, but only say things that are good for building one another up. Christians, don't say filthy or crude things any longer. Christians, submit to one another. 
out of reverence for Christ. I mean, when you see what he's urging them to do, you think, man, that doesn't sound like and the early church was pretty messed up. I mean, we look at ourselves and, and sometimes I think, boy, if we could only get back to the way it was in Acts chapter 2, man, that was the church. Well, I mean, you see right here the way it was. We find the same exact thing in Paul's letter to the Colossians. In Colossians, Paul starts out talking about the already. Here in the church, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, all are in Christ. And then in the same chapter, you don't, have to, you don't even have to go to a different chapter, in Colossians 3, later, right after he says that, he says, look, so put away anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. Don't lie to one another. And there was a lot of lying going on in the in the early churches, seeing as how you've put off the old self and put on the new, there's that already and not yet. Put on, Christians, compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Bear with one another. Forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So the point is this. Just as Christians need by God's grace to work hard to become in Christ what we already are in Christ, so churches need to do the same thing. Churches need, by God's grace, to work hard to achieve in Christ what we already have in Christ. If we read these New Testament letters, yes, there are some historical things that are pertaining to that particular church at that particular time that, that we don't deal with cultural things that you can pretty easily pull out of there. But most of what is written in those New Testament churches are written to us. We can read those things and say, that's what we ought to be doing. And that means that Meadowcroft Presbyterian Church. Think about us as a local church. In, in one sense, you're a member here, you already have unity with everyone else that's also a member. You've already been united in a common faith. You have the same spirit. We have the same future. However, there's a sense in which Meadowcroft, like every other church, is not yet unified. There's work to be done. There are places that we fail. So, how can we strive to achieve in Christ what we already have in Christ. Well, there's way too much, as pretty much every sermon, there's way too much that, that one sermon can possibly say. Um, so this is not the be-all and end-all by any means. But one way that we can begin to strive towards that kind of unity is to live by the dictum that was uh, kind of always for, for years ascribed to St. Augustine, but actually is, is probably far later in the 1600s, says this, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. So what does that mean? In essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. Well, there's different ways to divide this up, but for simplicity sake, or trying to keep things simple, I'll, I want to talk about three tiers or three ranks of issues that can pop up in a church. The first rank or the first tier is what it says here, in essentials unity. The first tier are the essentials for Christian unity. 
These are things, these are issues, these are theological points, points of doctrine that separates Christian from non-Christian. These are points that if you uh, question them, if you say, I don't think I believe that, then it's going to lead me and, and, and hopefully lead uh, your friends, if they're Christians, to warn you that, that we're not sure we can take your profession of faith as authentic. These are things like God is a triune God. That God is not Allah. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are things like Christ is not a created being. Christ is not a creature. He, he wasn't just born man. He's, he's man and God. That Christ is two natures, a, a divine nature and a human nature in one person. This is that God is not a creature who's at our whim. These are things like we are saved by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ's work alone. These are things that, again, separate Christian from non-Christian. Now, that's one bucket. And again, in that bucket, the essentials, we need to have unity. The Christian faith means something. The Christian faith has a content. And if we don't all believe the essentials, then the church really doesn't mean anything. But there are two other buckets. These are both, I want to say, non-essentials. Non-essentials A and non-essentials B. Again, you can find books that deviate and divide these things up differently. Non-essentials A. So in both of these non-essentials, there should be liberty. Okay? Non-essentials A are issues that are really important to the church that we believe are uh, things we should uh, hold very highly, that we should believe one way or the other, and that we shouldn't treat lightly. But Christians can differ on, and although they won't be, and probably shouldn't be, serving as leaders in the same church, maybe not members of the same congregation, however, will embrace one another as brothers and sisters. These are things like baptism, just to name one thing. Uh, I experienced this personally when I did an internship at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Uh, I was the one Presbyterian in the group of seven of us, but, but I was also, I think, the one Presbyterian, as far as I knew, the one Presbyterian in the entire church. And, uh, and you know, we had lots of debates about it. We, we had lots of discussion. Uh, we both held strongly to our position on baptism, and I was glad. I would rather see those brothers believe strongly that I was wrong and strongly disagree with me than say, it doesn't matter, because baptism is very important in Scripture. And so we disagreed. We disagreed to the point where I couldn't serve as a pastor in their church. They wouldn't want me. Even if I wanted to, they would never hire me because we don't agree on something as central as baptism. However, when I visit Capitol Hill Baptist, whenever I do, I'm given hundreds of hugs and everybody calls me brother. I have those pastors there texting me and asking, how am I doing? How's your church doing? We're praying for you. 
There's a, a unity that we have still in Christ, even in liberty of these non-essentials, if you will. But there's a third tier, a third tier of non-essentials. So that's the bucket you know, C or whatever. And these, these are our ideas, doctrines, things that we, each one of us can hold to that Christians in the same congregation should be able to believe differently and still have great unity in the same congregation, still be able to live in peace, still be able to treat one another well. And if you think about all of the things that fall into that bucket, it almost seems like an infinite number of things. I mean, you can just think about all of the things that you may differ with a fellow member here at Meadowcroft about, that you would believe completely the opposite over. I mean, I can't even begin to list all of them, but these are just some, right? You're building a church. What's going to be the color of the carpet in the sanctuary? Uh, We've got one of two choices, maroon or light blue. I was part of a church that went through that, and there was huge issues over the color of the carpet. Uh, Are we going to have pews or no pews? Are we going to have guitars and drums or no guitars and drums? Uh, What are we going to wear? Some of us wear suits and ties, some of us dress casually. Uh, Who do we vote for? What political party do we support? Uh, Some voted for this party, uh, some for that. Uh, Some support this issue, some that issue. Uh, Are we going to do hymns or praise songs after Sunday morning worship? uh, Do you go out and eat at a restaurant, or do you decide to stay home and cook at home? Uh, I, I can't even begin to list all of the things that we differ on. But all of these things, if they're third-level issues, if they fall into that bucket, you go back to the dictum in essentials, unity, and in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. The interesting thing is, ironically, if you look at the majority of division in the church, if you look at, I think, the majority of church splits, probably most of them come out of that third bucket, They tend to be the ones that our unity is not broken over first-level issues. Our unity is not often uh, broken over the second-level issues. And again, there shouldn't be, it shouldn't be broken from brother to brother, but oftentimes you find churches that are united, that have leadership and that leadership supports both infant baptism and non-infant baptism on the same leadership, and it creates a horrible disconnect in the leadership, and they, and they think nothing of it. What you find is that churches have great issues and, and great battles over these third-tier issues. Why is that? Well, I mean, again, there's lots of things to say about it, but I mean, one of the things you can say is that I think because too often we mistake uniformity to our personal preferences as unity. 
uniformity to our own personal preferences as unity. And instead, what you find in Scripture is that biblical church unity is described as unity in diversity. You find this especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a famous section, uh, verses 12 to 26. Paul says, just as uh, the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. He says this, the body doesn't consist of one member. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Uh, If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. Uh, He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? You you get what Paul is talking about, that it's one body, but many different parts, and, and each part has different skills and abilities and likes and dislikes and preferences. And here we see is that it's God's design that his church be such that if the outside world looked at it, the outside world that comes together based on personal preferences and likes and dislikes and, and common interests, that the world would look at the church and say, that doesn't make sense to me. And it shouldn't make sense because the church is united by God through his spirit and not by man's efforts. You know, it's interesting uh, I've been in churches uh, like now, this one, that is primarily filled with non-hand raisers when you're singing hymns. Most of us, I mean, at least, well, I sit in the front row, so then again, I might be wrong. <laughs> you guys might all be raising your hands at the, but, uh, but, you know, the churches, I've been in other churches where I don't raise my hand, but I think 85% of the church is raising its hands when the, when the church. Now, God made us differently. But what's interesting is that sometimes when a a hand raiser looks at a non-hand raiser, they start to judge them. I've been accused by people in, 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 in my life of because I don't raise my hands, I must not be emotional. Because I don't raise my hand, I must not care that much. I must not be that into worship. Uh, these things are things that have been leveled at me when if they would have had one conversation with me prior to that, it would have all been sorted out. I'm, I'm not sure there's a morning that goes by here when I'm not left in tears over many of the hymns that we sing. Furthermore, uh, non-hand raisers can look at a hand raiser and say, well, that person seems to be making a spectacle of themselves. That person, I think, is, is probably just being too demonstrative. They probably aren't even thinking about the words They're probably just getting lost in the music when one conversation can cure that. Disagreement over third-tier issues does not equal disunity. It depends on how you disagree. Jesus commands us to love our enemies and pray for those who hate us. So when we're talking about a third-tier category, we should be able to disagree with one another and disagree even strongly while not demonizing one another. Jesus says this, if we do that, he says in his prayer that this kind of interaction will mark us off to the world 
that that will demonstrate to the world that we are his. And I think that that is becoming increasingly more important. As our society begins to really descend into uh, a society where, especially on social media, uh, we don't so much talk with one another and converse, but, but really shout at one another. Um, how can we do this? How can we strive for this? Well, keep in mind a few things. One, that the member with whom you disagree is also a sinner saved by grace and bound for glory. They and you have the same beginning and ending. Keep in mind that, that neither you nor the member with whom you disagree is omniscient. That means that either one of you might be wrong in some or all of what you think you're right about. So be humble and open to correction. Uh, number three, be ready and willing to walk away from your conversation, even your debate, even if you haven't convinced them of your position while still treating them with love and thinking of them as your fellow church member. Think of Jesus' apostles. Just think of that band that he brought together. Now, a lot of them were fishermen. But if you know the way that Second Temple uh, community operated, you would know that Jesus chose two guys that couldn't have been more on opposite ends of the political spectrum. Jesus chose, as one of his apostles, Matthew the tax collector. And tax collectors were hated by most Jews, and tax collectors were thought of as being in Rome's back pocket. They were all for Roman occupation. Not only that, but they served Roman occupation by uh, being a traitor to their people, by collecting taxes and being thieves on top of it, and keeping a lot of the money for themselves. That was one guy Jesus chose. Another guy Jesus chose was Simon the Zealot. The Zealots hated Roman occupation so much they were training to be insurrectionists and, and assassins. These guys wanted to overthrow Roman occupation by themselves, kick Rome out, and be free. And Jesus chose both of these guys. Can you imagine the conversations that they had? I, I think about that. I mean, they, they both probably had some fiery conversations as disciples of Christ. And both of them brought their own talents and abilities, but they both had to be taught by Christ. Simon, the zealot, had to learn. Simon, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Matthew, the tax collector, had to be taught. Matthew, you cannot serve both God and money. They both had strengths that they brought to the table, but... They both had to have what was unbiblical stripped away so that they could both be brought closer to Christ in what they believed. Now, I'll just close by saying this. I, this is going to sound weird maybe, but I think God designed the church to be like Thai food. Uh, Thai food, now some of you may be a, more of an expert on it than I am. Thai food, from what I've read, is a combination. I love Thai food. It's probably my favorite. But Thai food is a combination of these flavors. Sweet, salty, savory, sour, and spicy. Some even include bitter. 
Now, if I, you just take that as your guide and you pour yourself a bowl of Cheerios in the morning and you decide to dump salt, Frank's Red Hot, and, and honey on it, I mean, I don't know, maybe it would be good, but I seriously doubt it. It sounds terrible. It sounds like the taste would be horrible because they all contradict one another. But instead, in a great Thai dish, as this master chef puts them all together, they complement one another perfectly. And so it is with the local church. The, the Lord has brought together complementary personalities, backgrounds, ethnicities, and we are meant not to contradict and be a source of uh, a strife, but to complement one another beautifully so that we come away reflecting the God who one day in glory will bring us all together in glory, every tribe and tongue and nation, worshiping him perfectly. Just close with this. I said I would close with that. I'll close one, one more thing. Just, 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 just to look at verse 26 here. Jesus says, he prays for last of all, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. See, if there's anything that should characterize the local church, it's love, right? And it's the love of Christ. It's biblical love. Biblical love is not wimpy. Biblical love is not avoidance. Biblical love is patient, it's kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And in, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul ends by saying, these three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. Why? Why is love the greatest? Well, Paul doesn't say there, but I believe it's because love is the one of the three that will never end. See, when we're in glory, we will have no more need for faith because we will have sight. When we are in glory, we will have no more need for hope because who hopes in what he sees? But love will never end. In fact, love will be perfect. And brothers and sisters, when we're in glory, we will love one another because he first loved us. If we want to see what true love is, look no further than the cross.